Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we are very lucky to have with us today, Christiana Figueres, who is joining us from Costa Rica, but joining us at a very interesting time, because we are now just at the beginning of the COP Summit, which is launching in Dubai. All the delegates are beginning to gather. And Christiana Figueres is an absolutely central figure to the bringing together of global climate agreements. She was central to the whole UN process for many years and was one of the chief architects of the breakthrough in Paris, which led to a lot of the agreements in terms of climate targets. She is a Costa Rican diplomat. She comes from a very distinguished Costa Rican political family. She's multilingual. Just before we came on, she and Alistair were attempting to conduct this interview in German. Then to mock him, she then moved into Spanish, which I must say he was much less <laughs> successful. And we're very, very lucky to have you with us. But I think if we can start with the most straightforward thing, which I guess is is what a lot of the world is thinking about at the moment, can you tell our listeners in basic terms what is happening in Dubai, why it matters, what you're expecting and what you're concerned by? Okay. Well, those are about seven questions, each of which would take about three and a half hours to answer. But let me start by saying thank you very much, Rory and and Alistair, for inviting me on. You did introduce me as a Costa Rican diplomat. I am probably the most undiplomatic diplomat you've ever met. In any event, here we are. Yes, the beginning of the COP in Dubai, it's COP28. First of all, what is COP? COP is actually an acronym, and I hope it's the only acronym we're going to use in this conversation, but it is an acronym that stands for Conference of the Parties. It is the annual meeting of parties, as they are called, which are the national governments that are part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And it was these nations who came together in 2015 to adopt, sign, and then bring into legal standing the Paris Agreement. So same nations, now some years later, what is it, eight years later, coming together again. And this will happen every year. So COP28 in Dubai is first surprising, I would say, because this is an effort to control greenhouse gas emissions and set guardrails for the evolution of the global economy along decarbonizing path. And so it is perhaps quite surprising that it takes place in an oil and gas exporting country. And there has been much uh, discussion about that, whether it even has the authority, the credibility, the standing to host a conference on climate change and whether there are too many oil and gas executives who are present, et cetera, et cetera. It is rather unusual, I must say. But it was the decision of that region to host it in Dubai this year. Now, what makes COP28 a little bit unusual from the other 
is that this is the year in which something will occur called the global stock take, which is an exercise mandated by the Paris Agreement of 2015. It is the process in which all countries have to report what they have done on their decarbonization and increasing resilience efforts, and then come up with a compounded sense of whether we are moving on the right path. But more importantly, are we doing it at the speed and scale that is required by science? And the answer to that is no. So then the second question is, now what? Now, Christiana, you said you were not diplomatic, but were you being a tad diplomatic when you used the word unusual? Did you buy unusual in the UAE hosting this event, did you perhaps mean inappropriate or potentially counterproductive? Or do you just mean unusual? No, I mean unusual because it has only happened once before when we had a COP in Qatar, um, which is also an oil and gas producing country. So I do mean unusual, like numerically, mathematically, statistically unusual. But you don't feel there's something fundamentally uh, worrisome about the fact that they're could be a kind of inbuilt conflict of interest about the whole thing. You're confident it can still work. It very much depends on how the president of the COP manages this situation and stewards the meeting. Let me put it this way. I was the executive secretary of the climate convention and I had to work every year with a different COP president because they rotate every year. And the one thing that is absolutely fundamental for both the executive secretary, in my case, but everyone else before and after me, and for the COP president, is to be completely impartial to all political interests. It was frankly very difficult for me because I come from the wild and wonderful Costa Rica, a very, very proud country. I am a very proud citizen. I am very proud of the environmental integrity with which Costa Rica defines its policies. So I'm partial. I am partial to environmental integrity. And it was clear to me when I went to the UN to follow my role that I could not be partial to my country's position anymore, that I had to step out of that and assume my role with complete impartiality with respect to all other countries and their all of their political interests and positions. The same thing has to be done by a COP president. And that is, of course, a different person every year. But um, in this case, the COP president is not just an Emirati citizen. He actually is also the head of ADNOC, which is the state-owned oil and gas company. That presents a major challenge. And I have said from the beginning that my concern is not that he is the oil and gas head, but rather that up until a few months ago, he had not separated himself from that position and was able to come to this challenge that he has with an impartiality that is necessary. That is the challenge. Yeah, and there were, there were all these reports, I think, which you were commenting on saying it was like the VW scandal, uh, pointing out that there was BBC reporting on a lot of apparent backroom meetings, which UAE were going to be doing, promoting its oil and gas industry. Um, can I just go to something that confuses me, 
Whenever you go through an airport at the moment, you see huge ads from various fossil fuel companies telling you what wonderful things they're doing and investing in renewables. But it seems as though only about 1% of the renewable investment is coming actually from fossil fuel companies. There's an impression that they're not really making the transition that they're pretending to make. Can you explain this? What's going on? Is it simply not in their economic interest? Is there no point in them really getting into solar and the stuff that they pretend to be doing at airports? I would actually divide that into two timeframes, Rory. My sense is that at least the publicly traded, perhaps not so true for the state-owned, but the publicly traded companies, especially the European ones, were very sincerely on a path of transition from their past and current business model onto a new business model with new resources, still understanding themselves to be an energy company, which they are, but no longer dominated by the oil and gas sector, but rather moving into first a broader portfolio of energy sources and gradually more predominantly into renewables. That was true of most of these publicly traded companies until the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Very interesting, right? Because what happened there is that because oil and gas was weaponized by Russia, the prices soared as we all witnessed. And these oil and gas companies, for nothing that they did, not because they improved their performance or, you know, no, nothing, absolutely nothing that they did. Their profits just went through the roof, unprecedented profits. And then the big old dollar was just too tempting. And what did they start to do? They started to buy back shares. They started to give their shareholders larger dividends. They started to lobby against climate policies, especially in the United States. They did everything against the evolution of the energy sector, which they had been on a track before the Russian invasion. So it is really quite concerning that they are now digging in. Now, next to that, and I think it's, it's really important to see the two effects of the Russian invasion, because one, prices soared and they just dug in to their by now obsolete uh, resources. But what is much more interesting is the fact that so many countries realized that depending on imported oil and gas, is actually very, very dangerous for their national security, their national energy security. And so one, the other factor that we see is an incredible spike in the investment into renewable energies, not on the part of oil and gas, but on the part of all other actors, an investment into renewables in order to strengthen the energy independence of countries so that they do not have to depend on oil and gas because oil and gas, let's face it, is being exported by quite a few regimes that have proven themselves to be complicated. <laughs> so we've had complicated, we've had unusual. Now, listen, Christiana, let's just go back to 2015. When you were stuck there in Paris, you were executive secretary of the UN framework. 
You've got all these different forces. You're surrounded by lobbyists. You're surrounded by vested interests who are getting into the government delegates and getting into the campaign groups that are all around the place. How do you actually go about the process of trying to get all these countries to agree to something pretty difficult? Well, first of all, let's just recognize that the Paris Agreement was not the result of two weeks at, in Paris, right? It was the result of five years of work consistently and, uh, and, 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 and also very much of a reaction to the, what I call the most successful failure of the United Nations, which was the um, Copenhagen meeting at the end of 2009. And so I was given the responsibility to pick up the political process out of the trash can and see what I could do with it. Christiana, I'm going to interrupt just on behalf of listeners. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened in Copenhagen and maybe a little bit of the background to that so they understand what this failure was? Oh, yes. It was, yet again, another of these yearly meetings. Um, and it was touted to be the meeting at which the world would come together for a global agreement on climate change. And there was a lot writing on that. In fact, for those working on this, Copenhagen was no longer Copenhagen. It was Copenhagen with an H because there was so much hope that this was going to be the moment and the time at which the world would come together. And that did not happen. But not only did it not happen, it was a disaster. The process was very, very poorly managed. Uh, global leaders came in and had all kinds of secretive meetings. The COP president resigned and was substituted by someone else who had no idea about UN rules. We had one, just, just to give you, you know, a, a sense of the drama there, we had one country uh, delegate representative from Venezuela who actually stood up on her official desk that says Venezuela on it. I mean, you have to understand, right, in, in a UN context, all these desks, each one has a name, the country. It's a very, very formal, very exceedingly formal um, context. And we have this, you know, beautiful and very energetic, compelling, eloquent delegate standing on her desk, screaming to request the floor and actually doing so with such verb using her metal nameplate, country nameplate, that she actually cut into her hand. And when she finally got the floor on behalf of the uh, COP president, she was bleeding. And uh, then, you know, delivered these amazing, onto all the television uh, cameras of the world, delivered this impassioned speech about the totally failed process that she was witnessing. So I was there, uh, you know, there are many Copenhagen survivors, as I call us. Um, and, uh, and, and it really marked us, it marked all of us. And Christiana, what lessons did you take from that about what you needed to do better leading into Paris? So if you were helping listeners understand, you come out of something that what are your main lessons that you're then thinking about over the next four or five years that you're going to have to fix if you're going to get a successful summit? Yeah, we, we actually did a third party analysis of everything that went wrong and then dedicated quite a few years to um, addressing each of the issues that went wrong. But in big picture, we understood that the process had to be very transparent, that there was absolutely no tolerance anymore for small meeting rooms with just a few representatives, even if those representatives had been authorized by other countries to speak for them. That was just totally gone, which gets back actually to Alistair's question. 
about how do you get everybody to unanimously approve. The fact is that there are no voting rules in this convention. They were never agreed to. They will never agree to. We can go back down that rabbit hole, but let's just take it for a fact that there are no voting rules. So in principle, you would be able to take decisions by consensus and consensus in a strictly legal interpretation means consensus is in the hands of the person who is chairing the meeting to say, I sense that there is enough support in the room to adopt decision, whatever. And we did, after Copenhagen, adopt quite a few decisions at future meetings by consensus. But with the dissent of a handful of countries. And that caused major political havoc, and in one case, legal havoc. So by the time we got to Paris, we had we and the Secretariat had decided that we would not adopt the Paris Agreement by consensus, we would do it by unanimity. That completely changes the situation. That really ups the game here, because that means if one country does not agree, it does not get adopted. So we self-imposed that very high standard on ourselves. And we worked for five years. That's a huge risk. It's a huge risk. But we also thought, Alistair, give me one country that is not affected by climate change. None. Every single country is affected by climate change. Every single country can contribute in differentiated ways, for sure. But every country can and must contribute to addressing climate change. So if that is true, if both of those statements are true, therefore, we have to get to something that every country can agree to. That was not easy. And it caused a lot of drama. But in the end, we had, for the first time ever in the UN, a unanimous decision that was legally binding that affects the evolution of the global economic system. I've been to th dozens of these European summits, which always seem to end in the early hours of the morning and people are exhausted. So as you say, most of the work is done in advance. Do you think these decisions can be made without these endless through the night meetings where people are kind of arguing over semicolons and whether it should be this word or that word to get to an agreement? Do you think people feel they have to go through that incredible drama and tension? to make it feel like it matters? It's such a good question, Alistair. I've, I've thought about that a lot myself. And it, it's certainly, you know, you know how we're creatures of tradition and of habit, and we have these habit energies. And when I joined this process, which was way, way, way back in the um, early 90s, I did observe how we caught ourselves into the habit of that, of what you've just described, except it used to be two and three days beyond the deadline. Um, and I, in fact, even remember the Kyoto uh, meeting uh, that we had in 1997 when we adopted the Kyoto Protocol, where the venue ran out of food because, you know, they just didn't expect it to go that long. But the point is that we had gotten ourselves into this habit. And that's one of the things that we really worked on to bring dial this back down to some rigor and some discipline about deadlines. And also some humanity, because honestly, these people, all of us, you know, we work in and out, day in, day out. And it's incredibly, it's humanly exhausting. So we did cut down the, oh, the, let's call the, uh, the overshoot of the time 
to a day, sometimes 12 hours, which was a definite improvement over the three days that we had before. Can I understand? And maybe I'd like to bring in Alistair on this, because it's also true often of very dramatic EU summits, this tendency to leave everything to the last moment, stay up till four in the morning, only craft the agreement at the last moment. Alistair, any reflections from your point before I come back to Christiana on, on why this is? What, what, why is the whole thing not sorted out in advance? Why does it always push in, in these crazy ways? Because I think there's a limit to what can be done until the leading politicians actually get involved. And they tend to kind of fly in, some of them very well briefed, some of them not so well briefed, some of them with a very clear specific thing they want to pursue, others with very different clear specific things that they want to do. And then people like Christiana are sitting there with a big jigsaw piece, which and they're worrying that any one of these leaders can remove a piece. And if they're not careful, the whole thing falls apart. And to get the pieces back together, you usually need to get the leaders in the room to, to fix it. Do you think that's fair, Christiana? Yeah, that, that's fair. Plus, you know, let's just look at the complexity. In Paris, we were negotiating 67 different issues along five parallel tracks. So, you know, it's, it's not like you're working on one text. You're working on many different texts that cover a very wide gamut of issues. And they're all interlinked, Rory. That's the issue. They're all interlinked. It is not true that you leave something for the end. We, you work on this for a whole year. You're working on the text that will be adopted at the end of the year. And there is very serious work on the part of everyone. But what happens is that you first you have to collectively develop a text. You try that, you know, 196 pens on one paper. Uh, so that in and of itself is uh, rather complicated. And that's assuming that each country only has one opinion, which they don't usually do. And then you start almost trying to find the low-hanging fruit, what of all of this could actually begin to move into the at least potentially theoretically approved and agreed bucket. And then you work yourself up into the more contentious issues. And those issues necessarily stay there to the end. And they are interlinked. You move one, as Alistair has said, you move one piece out and it completely changes the puzzle. Uh, for everyone who is attached to that piece. And everybody's attached to different pieces. So it is a constantly moving Tetris game until it finally settles. And Christiana, in Paris, what were the three big things, the three big pieces that you wanted to try to get in place? I, I think the three things that make Paris very, very different from anything that came before is number one, there is responsibility attached to every country of the world. Prior to that, there was responsibility attached only to industrialized countries because industrialized countries carry the historical responsibility for having caused climate change. And so you can understand the developing countries say, wait a minute, you guys, you caused this, you fix it up, don't talk to us. Industrialized countries say, well, yeah, okay, maybe I'm willing to accept the fact that I caused it, but if I look into the future and I look uh, you know, at your development curves, I see that you're coming up in your emission uh, curves. So we can't exempt you from something that is going to be in place for the next few decades, you need to come on board too. And so, you know, to get to something that is fair, that recognizes historical responsibility of one group of countries, but also future responsibility of everyone, 
that is not an easy agreement to come to. The other thing that was quite uh, different in the Paris Agreement is that it is based on national contributions, on each country making a legally binding commitment of how much are they going to reduce over a certain period of time, and then doing a monitoring and evaluation of the compliance of that. And so that was also quite different in the sense that every country had then to make public what their contributions were going to be. And the third thing, I mean, there are many things that make it quite unique, but the third things that I, that I would point out is that for the first time, there was a recognition that this is the responsibility not only of national governments, this is the responsibility of everyone. Subnational governments uh, can contribute, corporations can contribute, financial institutions. So everybody who is not a national government have also been uh, given a place in the contribution. Okay, quick break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Christiana, feel free to tell me to get lost when I ask this question, but we talk quite a lot on our podcast about the impact on people in public life of their contribution to public life. And I think around this time, you were going through a divorce, which is always difficult, and you were also having some struggles with your own mental health. Do you think either or both of those things were caused by the level of commitment that you needed to make to the job you were doing? Hmm. I don't think so, Alistair. It's a good question. Thank you for asking it. I'm not going to tell you to get lost. <laughs> it's a good question. No, I don't think so. I, I really think that it was the pain of, of my marital situation blowing up. 
that was the cause of that. And to the contrary, actually, like I guess many people, if not most or all people, there's a huge amount of learning and growth that comes when we hit bottom and uh, when we're in uh, incredibly stressed situations. And I, I did learn a lot. And I applied those learnings then to my day job. And I must say, although it was incredibly difficult to deal with my personal pain and my personal trauma while in the evenings, let's say, while during the day I'm holding this process, I am actually in retrospect, I am grateful for the, for the lessons that came out of that pain and feel that I am a, a more mature person for that and certainly much more capable of dealing with my own difficult situations. And also, Alistair, very important for me, much more empathic because I was in such pain and because I went through such a difficult time, I can now pretty readily put myself into the shoes of people who are going through incredible personal situations. I couldn't do that before. And I mean, to put it very clearly, I remember having been told by female friends of mine, I'm going through a divorce before this. And I just thought, oh, okay, well, they're going through a divorce. And I always said, how can I support? But it was out of my head because I had never had the experience. And when I went through the experience in the painful way that I did, all of a sudden, now when I know that there is a family that is going through this incredibly difficult situation, I am so much more capable of holding that pain and that process than I was before I went through it before. And I really am convinced that there is no way that you can put yourself in another person's shoes if you haven't worn those shoes yourself. The same goes through with the fact that I've now lost two siblings and I'm in the process of losing my third sibling. You can't understand the impact of the death of someone who you love deeply and is very, very close to you. You can't understand that unless you've been in those shoes. So I'm actually, post the, the drama, I'm actually quite grateful that it has made me a more empathic, a deeper person. Thank you for that. And you come from a family with a very, very strong tradition of public service. Your sister was the Costa Rican ambassador to the US, your brother was president, and most dramatically of all, your father was the president of Costa Rica in the 40s, the 50s, even in the 70s, so a very, very long period, and basically created the modern state. Looking back at your father, what kind of personal cost do you think that carried in terms of the amount of time he could spend with his children, his mental health, the pressures on him while he was achieving these extraordinary things for his country? A huge cost worry. And I, I can tell you, you know, an, an anecdote that illustrates this. I, I must have been maybe, I don't know, six or seven, maybe eight, but not more. When my father was um, in an interview from a journalist who had traveled to Costa Rica to interview him about politics and economics in Latin America. Why I was there, I have no idea, because of course I understood absolutely nothing. But at the end of the interview, the journalist said, Don Pepe, which is the, um, the loving way that my father is addressed, um, Don Pepe, how many children do you have? And my father, without even losing you know, a beat, he said three million. Now, three million was the population of Costa Rica at the time. 
Now, that is the only thing that I understood of the whole interview. And you can imagine for, you know, a little girl there standing behind my father's chair, I, I just felt a knife go through my heart. I went like, wait, what? Hold on. I expected the number six, right? Because he was married twice. He had two children in the first marriage and then the marriage with my mother from whence came four children. So I expected six, three million. And it took me a long time to understand that my father saw himself and understood himself and is viewed today as the father of the country. You said it felt like a knife going through you. Did, did you ever discuss that with him, either as a child or as an adult? No, no, no. Alistair, you do not discuss personal things with my father. No, 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 no. <laughs> because of the responsibilities that he carried and, you know, an incredible visionary and revolutionary leader and then democratic leader. I mean, what, what a personality. He outlawed the army in Costa Rica. He rewrote the constitution uh, it is to him that we have to thank for the fact that we now invest more in education and biodiversity than most other countries. I mean, honestly, the, this country is the marvel that it is substantially because of my uh, my father and what he did in those years. But that's the space that he occupied. He had no space for chit chat, no space for personal, you know, woo woo things, sentimental things, none of that. I mean, just forget that. And And we were very clear about that. So we did pay a cost in the sense that he was not the father to his born children. But we also, especially as we grew up, we also understood that we stand in the legacy of a dedication to service and a dedication to social justice and a dedication to making the world a better place in many different ways, because each of us has chosen a different way of doing it. But that legacy runs very strong. And I'm truly grateful to my father. And I have come to terms with it. I'm like, okay, you can't do everything. You can't be the father to the country and outlaw the army and change all the laws and do all of that. And also, you know, be sitting on the floor playing Lego with your kids. I mean, it just, you, you can't do everything. Um, and so I have honestly forgiven him for not playing Lego, the fact, despite the fact that he did play domino with us. So Costa Rica to this day does not have a standing army, is that right? Correct. And in these kind of rather worrying, turbulent times, does that not make Costa Rican people feel a little bit worried? No, we are actually very proud of it. What lessons are there from that? for the rest of the world. Well, wouldn't the world be in a very different place if we didn't have armies, right? Just, just think of the financial investment in our, into armies, right? My father thought that was a total waste of national budget because the army had been used in Costa Rica to enforce anti-democratic decisions that did not want to respect the result of, uh, of free elections. And so that's why he, being a farmer, decided that it was his responsibility. Who told him that? No one. But it was his responsibility to organize and, uh, and lead a revolution against the government that had usurped power and was, was victorious. And then uh, he took over power, disbanded his own army, sent everybody back to where they were, either university, because there were many university professors who were actually in his revolutionary army or many farmers. So he sent everybody back to either the books or the plows, depending on where they came from. 
Then he disbanded the National Army. And he said, this is a total misuse of national budget. And he took the budget from the army and he put it into education. Costa Rica has one of the highest levels of education on the continent and into biodiversity protection from whence our income comes now. Because when you think about Costa Rica, you think about us as an eco destination. We have 3 million tourists who come to Costa Rica every year, not because of our cities that are not worthwhile seeing, but because of the biodiversity that we have. We have, we sustain 5% of the biodiversity of the world. And so you come to us to see the beautiful nature. And Christiana, I mean, I, as a, somebody who's, who's been to Costa Rica to see your biodiversity, I can totally pay tribute to that. Just on this, what were the things that kept him balanced? I mean, he went through an unbelievably difficult time. So he takes over essentially in a military-led operation in the 1940s, and he presides through the middle of the Cold War. So he is having to deal with the Americans, the Russians. He's dealing with counter coups trying to come in from Nicaragua in the 1950s. It's a most intense, difficult time in, in Latin American politics. What do you think his personal qualities were that allowed him to be able to navigate that level of pressure and complexity when presumably the whole geopolitical situation was leaning on him at times to try to tip one way or another and he was having to try to keep his vision in place? Humility. My father was the most humble person I have ever met. He never put himself forward. Being brilliant, absolutely brilliant person, self-taught, didn't go to school, educated himself in the library, public libraries of Boston and New York, taught himself English, read all the classics, read Napoleon's wars and put together his military strategy when he needed it. He read philosophy. He was a self-made man. And if there was one characteristic that I truly witnessed, remember and aspire to, that came from my father is humility. What a lesson that someone who was so brilliant and had in the eyes of the world and the public so much power, never used that power, but rather was capable of convening very disparate opinions and um, being able to bring those disparate opinions to common ground. So that's your dad, Jose, and then your brother, Jose Figueres Olsen, also became president. He did, but after my father had passed on. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not suggesting there was a family coup, don't worry. I'm, <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was sometime later. Do you think your brother felt within him that he, that he had to step into that position in public life? And what qualities did he have that perhaps were more relevant to a more modern era? Yeah, he, he may have felt that, unfortunately, one of the traits that we in Latin America inherited from Spain is that we tend to name our children the same as the parents. And uh, that was the case for my brother, that he carries the same name as my father. And my brother's son and grandson also carry the same name. I happen to not agree with that because I just think it's an incredible emotional backpack that you put on uh, a newly born child. So I, I definitely did not follow that tradition, but my brother does carry my father's um, name. And so, yes, he probably thought that um, he had to step into that. I think my brother will be recognized for his um, commitment to sustainability. He came into, uh, in, into power when sustainability was the topic 
and he introduced many measures um, that increased uh, sustainability in the Costa Rican economy. Can I bring you back then, since we started with climate, and that was very kind of you to be so open on, on family, but take us back to the absolute fundamentals. For listeners listening, why does this issue matter? Why should they care about Paris? Why should they care about Dubai? Why should they care about climate? And then we'll focus in laser-like on the steps that we need to take. But firstly, the big issue, why should people care about climate? People should care about climate because it already is, but very quickly will deepen and will mark the quality of life on this planet. It is already marking our quality of life this year. We had what many people call the summer from hell. We had temperatures in most countries that had been completely unseen. Uh, the average temperature around the world had never been seen in 120,000 years. We had droughts, we had wildfires, we had um, floods, we had ocean warming like we have never seen. So we are already crossing many, many tipping points and uh, breaking many records. And that will continue unless we do our job. And when I say that this is marking the quality of life, I really mean that because picture, if you will, Rory, that if this warming continues, if this heating continues, we will have vast swaths of the planet that become completely uninhabitable. And they're inhabited now. So what are those people going to do? They're going to be forced migrants. So now picture that we already have a migration problem around the world, but multiply that times 10, 20, 30, 100, and you will see huge waves of migrations moving from uninhabitable lands into lands that can still produce food and that still have temperatures that are within the range of survivability. Can you imagine the military conflict? Can you imagine the economic pressure on those countries that would still be within the livable range? Can you imagine the political chaos of what do you do about your borders? I mean, we have enough discussion about borders now. And can you imagine if that is multiplied um, by an order of magnitude? How is that going to affect us? How will it affect the fact that today we already have let's call it a billion people, at least under the poverty line, at least. And if we do not do our job, those people will never be able to get above the poverty line. In fact, they will be subjected to even more extreme poverty. Think of the pressure that that puts on global peace, on global trade, on global food production. It is something that frankly is unmanageable. I had the insurance companies with whom I worked very intimately for the Paris Agreement, I had them come to me before the Paris Agreement and say, if we ever get to a world that goes above two degrees increase in temperature, when what science tells us is we have to keep it at 1.5 increase from where we were in pre-industrial age, and, and we're getting very close. But the insurance companies said, if we get to a world that is two degrees warmer, than the baseline, we will be in systemically uninsurable scenario. 
Now, please consider how your personal life would be affected if you cannot buy insurance for anything, not for your home, if you own a home, not for your life, not for your health. Just imagine that the insurance companies would not be able to manage the risks that we would be facing constantly, and you have no access to insurance. That doesn't mean that the premiums go up and only rich people can get insurance. No, that means no insurance. Systemically uninsurable was what they told me. We should really care about climate change. What's the best that can come out of the current COP that we're about to go through? And what's the worst that you could fear from it? What's a Copenhagen outcome and what's a Paris outcome from Dubai? Oh, my gosh. If you, if you put it in those terms, that really puts me up against a wall. <laughs> Let's see. A, a Copenhagen outcome is no outcome. Uh, and that would, be, that would be really tragic because uh, we do need um, outcomes to come. A Paris outcome, and I have to say, it is not comparable to Paris because we're not looking at a legally binding text that has been adopted by everyone. You know, it's a completely different scenario, completely different scenario. We're looking for operative decisions, let's call it. And so which operative decisions can we expect if this does its job? One operative decision that would be incredibly helpful is a commitment, which is entirely realistic for everyone to say, right, we're currently at 12% of all the electricity in the world is being produced by renewables. That's where we are now. By 2030, which is the deadline that has been established by science, we're going to triple that. We're going to get to almost 40 or 40% of all electricity around the world coming from renewables. The fact is that renewables, especially wind and solar, are now so cheap and so competitive with oil and gas, that that is entirely doable. We're having deployment of solar and wind that is actually no longer marginal and linear, but exponential. So we can go from 12% to 40% over the next seven years, and I'm hoping that there can be an agreement on that. We can also have a very important agreement on something called the Fund for Loss and Damage, Mm -hmm. which is how are we going to support developing countries that are already having, but will continue to have, huge losses and damages caused by climate change. Is this the thing that Mia Motley from Barbados has been pushing? Mia Motley has been pushing actually something that is even bigger, which is a reform of the entire financial sector, starting with development banks. And she is absolutely correct in that because the development banks were um, designed as um, the financial infrastructure for a world that was basically coming out of the Second World War. But you don't expect that to come out of um, out of this COP? No, the Bridgetown agenda cannot be adopted by the okay. COP. No, it has to be adopted by the financial sector. I mean, she could get support for it, but it cannot be adopted there. They don't have the mandate for that. But they do have the mandate for the loss and damage fund that has substantially been structured, but not capitalized. And so a decision on how that is going to be capitalized would be incredibly effective. Now, May I say where most of the drama is going to be? Around one little word, and that's where words really count. Currently, we have a standing decision from previous COPs that says that all countries will commit to a phase down, down being the operative word here, a phase down of uh, fossil fuels. 
There is, of course, the expectation on the part of those who are most concerned about the negative impacts of climate change that this will be this decision will be upgraded to the term not just phase down, but phase out, which was the original intent, but that was watered down. And so, it, you know, ridiculous as it may seem, words really count in legal text. Mm. And, uh, you know, there is a difference between phase down and phase out. And you can imagine that the oil and gas sector uh, does not want a term that says phase out. So I actually would be able to, I don't know if predict, but certainly sense that those two words, phase out or phase down. Down and out. Down and out is going to be central to the drama at this COP. And Dr. Al Jabba is, I think, is he not a little keener on phase down than phase out, given that he's a... Head of the state-owned oil company, possibly. Well, let's remember that he's supposed to be completely impartial. Okay. So, Christiana, can I come in at my last question, which is the geopolitics? So, we are now in an age of populism, and a lot of the populists that you can see emerging, particularly across Europe, are pushing climate skepticism, or at least rowing back on climate targets as part of their appeal to their voters. We have Donald Trump now looking as though he's ahead of Joe Biden in the polls in the US. And of course, he took people out of the Paris Accords. How could all this geopolitics, this rise in a new form of populism play in to our ability to meet these climate targets over the next 10 years? There's no doubt that geopolitics plays a role. But I would like to, un to underscore that I'm saying a role, not the role. It plays a role because Yes, there is a lot going against us, but there's also, if you followed it, a recent bilateral agreement between the US and China on cooperating on climate. So it's very interesting that climate, seem, because it is such a huge universal threat, it does seem to have the possibility of these countries separating out and ring fencing climate change out of all of the other mess that they're in. I mean, if there is a mess between US and China now, it is uh, probably worse than it has been in years. And yet they were able to ring fence climate change and, uh, and agree on a collaboration there because of the magnitude of the threat. So I hope I'm not just, you know, wishful thinking here, but I think geopolitics will continue and, and populism for sure will continue to play a role, but increasingly, the engine of transformation and of the energy transition is moving from politics to the real economy. Increasingly, we're seeing that, for example, the demand of oil and gas coming down, the contraction of the demand of oil and gas, not yet the production, okay, but the demand. But once you really see that the demand is contracting, well, supply is going to have to respond to that. So my sense is that the political economy, the market forces are increasingly having more of an impact on the decarbonization of the economy than geopolitics. It doesn't mean that geopolitics is irrelevant. It just means that now and from here on out, there is a growing impact and influence of market forces and political economy that we had not seen before. That's kind of, that strikes a chord with something that 
one of our recent guests on leading, Mark Carney, the former Bank of England governor, who's become a big figure in the climate debate. He was saying something very, very, very similar. Well, Christiana, das war ein riesiges Vergnügen mit Ihnen, dieses wunderbares Gespräch zu haben. Und vielleicht das nächste Mal können wir alles auf Deutsch machen, damit wir nicht konstant Rory hören müssen. Was denken Sie? Ja, es ist ja wirklich unglaublich. Es wäre sehr schön, das auf Deutsch zu machen. Der arme Rory würde da sitzen und entweder, ich weiß nicht, was würde er machen, wenn er nicht sprechen könnte? <lacht> er würde sehr, sehr traurig sein, glaube ich. Glaubst du? Okay. <lacht> ja. Well, Christian, and, and coming back to the language, which some of our listeners at least speak, although I'm sure we have German listeners, thank you very, very much. Uh, for your time. Thank you for joining us from Costa Rica. Um, thank you also for the extraordinary contributions you've made to the world and the energy that you've put into bringing something as fundamental as the Paris Agreement together. It's been fascinating interacting with you and have a great rest of your day. Well, thank you. No, it's it's for me to, to thank you for uh, for this podcast that is so helpful to listeners and demystifies so many topics and brings it to what I call the kitchen table. Thank you. Thank you. So, Christiana Figueres, I think, was astonishing, not just because of what she's done on climate in Paris, but the whole family story, the mm. whole creation of Costa Rica. I thought she was great. I absolutely loved her. I thought the ability to sort of weave from talking about kind of managing, micromanaging a horribly complicated process and then barely skipping a beat into talking, I thought really quite movingly about her own experience as the child of a of a president in a country that many of our listeners will know very little about. But I think the way she described that, and I know lots of people listen rather than watch, but I think if you saw her face, and we'll, it'll be on YouTube, but when she was describing that situation of, what did she say? It was like a dagger through my heart yeah. when, he, when he said yeah. he, had, he had three million children. Yeah. And you can imagine a, a young child hearing that and thinking, Funny enough, when, when she said it, I, I thought, well, you know, surely you just realize it's a figure of speech. And no, no. I, but if I think about my six-year-old, he would be completely astonished. They're very literal-minded, of course, mm. children. One forgets how literal-minded. I mean, I think for a moment she would have thought, wait, wait a sec, maybe he does have three million children. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I also think it's a bit of a theme coming through because with Arnold Schwarzenegger, with Christiana, with Seb Coe, we've had people whose fathers were clearly quite challenging figures, mm. but their children are quite loyal towards them. It's oh, very yeah. interesting that they're not in any, in either of those three cases, are they really buying into the obvious narrative? In fact, in some ways, they seem to accept that they weren't perfect fathers, but they have huge admiration for them. I don't know much about Christiana's father, but what I saw was, yeah, really enduring love and respect but an honest assessment of what it was like to be his daughter. And so interesting in the modern world in which, obviously, we're always told that work-life balance is good for you and that there's you know, absolutely no reason to do that. Clearly, her father's view, and pretty much her view, is if you're going to be the founding father of an entire nation... You're not that's, got much time for the kids. It's a 90-hour-a-week job, and, mm. and that's what you do. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think I, you know, I've said to you before, I think that when you do those 90-hour-a-week jobs, you're frankly kidding yourself if you can be as good a parent as your kids probably want you to be and as yeah. you you might want to be yourself very very hard is one of the reasons why some people just can't bear the idea of going into politics or any other really high stressed situation i also think the fact that she's still despite a lot of reasons to be pessimistic on the environmental agenda she you kind of still i still felt a bit of 
optimism yeah, drive there. With with her as with Mark Carney. I mean, I think we we should probably get on somebody from climate science who's on the more critical side, because obviously there are people out there saying the problem actually is that Christiana and Mark have slightly drunk the Kool-Aid and that the actual story is much, much bleaker. You know, that Britain continues to generate 70% of its energy from mm. fossil fuels. The world continues to be 80% dependent on fossil fuels. So who would, who would we get on for that? Uh, Dieter Helm, I think, who's okay. really radical and interesting mm. and teaches at Oxford. Is pretty so, blunt. but his argument is they, they want the same thing. Yeah, actually, wants the same thing. He wants that the same thing, but he thinks we're not remotely on track, mm. and that he can't see any sign. But do you think if you're someone like Christiana, who's been part of the track, you want a little bit of confirmation bias, and you want yeah, you get that optimism yeah. that goes with it. Dieter would say that despite all these conferences, we've been adding exactly the same amount of carbon to the atmosphere every year. That we're still in a world in which 80% of our generation is fossil fuel. Mm. And of the remaining 20%, most of it are these big environmentally damaging hydro dams and nuclear. And wind and solar is still a tiny fraction of what we're doing, but that, that doesn't really come across in the mm. public language. Well, I thought she was great. I thought really good. Very strong. Thank you very much. See you soon.